Imagine someone giving you a job, and then you ask for a job description, and they say, oh, we don't have one. Just make it up as you go along. Imagine how you would feel. All of us have requirements of us, don't we? On our jobs, in our homes, wherever we go, we have requirements made of us. And the Lord also has some requirements of us. When we look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, we see the Lord dealing with Israel. And uh, he says to Israel, I have requirements, I have some requirements of you that I would like you to perform uh, as you serve me, as you live for me, as you represent me. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord require, the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him and to serve him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now in addition to fear, there are two requirements we want to focus on this evening. Of course, uh, fear is one of those that we are quite mindful of. And of course, we know there are three types of fears. Uh, that we experience in our lives. Uh, one is the legitimate fear that God has built into each of us when he made us, uh, fear of danger, fear of, uh, for the preservation of our lives. Whenever we are confronting something that will harm us in any way, that's a legitimate fear that God has built into us. That's something that he wants us to have in order that we may survive in the world in which we live. And then there is the, the fear that, that is called dread where there are individuals in our community that you probably dread. Uh, the criminal who has uh, committed so many crimes that he has a record and he's probably uh, notorious for what he has done. And so we dread such an individual. And then there is the reverential fear. And that's the kind of fear that God wants us to have. Reverential awe uh, of God. And so in addition to fearing God, uh, we want to focus on two other requirements. And, uh, and these are that we need to really learn what it means to walk in all his ways and to love him. To walk in all his ways and to love him. I was driving down uh, Palmdale one day and I saw this person walking. And because of the way that person walked, I knew who the person was even though I only saw them from the back. And I was at a distance. Because that person had a distinguishable walk. And besides that, I didn't know that person really walked. I thought he drove everywhere he went. But we all are distinguishable by the walk that we have. How many people, how many of you know individuals that you could distinguish, even if you don't see their face from a mile away, you could tell who they are by their walk? And you know, that's how God wants people to see us. We ought to be distinguishable by the way we walk. They should be able to recognize that we belong to God because of how we walk for, with, and before him. When we look at the Old Testament saints and the, and the patriarchs, they weren't distinguishable basically by the way people talked about them. But they were distinguishable by the way they walked before the Lord. In Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1, God said to Abraham, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. Now notice who he says he is. I am God almighty. I am the almighty God. There's nobody might, mightier than I. I want you to walk before me blamelessly. Now notice, 
He didn't say sinless, did he? He didn't say sinless. Why? Because we'll never ever be sinless as long as we're living in this world. As long as we're living in this world, we're going to be susceptible to sin. And we're going to sin in some way or another. But he says, walk blamelessly. And this means that whenever we mess up, we can go before God, confess our sins, seek forgiveness and repentance, and God will correct it. And that's why we have 1 John 1 and 9 in the Bible. For those times when we mess up, we can go before God. And so blameless doesn't mean sinless. We confess and we agree with God with what we have done. And that's an important aspect of going before God because many times we go before God and we confess, uh, but we do not acknowledge or agree with God. Yes, Lord, I agree with you. What I've done is wrong. It's wrong in your sight. And I confess it. And now I seek to repent. And so living blamelessly uh, before God means having no skeletons in our closets. None whatsoever. It means that our lives are fully open and exposed to God. And when it is, it's exposed to others as well. It means that there'll be nothing in our lives that is concealed that will embarrass God. And it's amazing how much uh, that is not realized. There are a lot of things that we could do, we are doing, we may be doing in our lives that could be an embarrassment to God that we don't even think about. We're doing a study in our Sunday school class on demonic activity, and one of the things that we mentioned was uh, whenever you go to witness to somebody who may be demon-possessed, one of the things that you will not, that has surprised a lot of people who have done that, is that those demons have supernatural knowledge. They know some things about you that others may not know and that you don't think they know. And there have been many individuals who have been embarrassed because they had some secrets in their lives that were exposed that they didn't think that anybody else knew. The same Hebrew word, uh, halak, is used here, uh, that is also used in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1. And it means, for me. Walk before the face of God. We are to walk before God's face or in his constant gaze. Imagine what life would be like if someone is constantly gazing at you. How does it make you feel? Either it will make you feel uncomfortable or it will make you feel special to know that someone is always watching you. I was at a service one time. And the governor general came into the service, and um, she was explaining why this guy was sitting behind her. She said, everywhere I go, this guy follows me, and I don't know why he follows me. He's just there. He's just right there behind me all the time. But it made her feel comfortable because that meant security. Well, many of us, many times, we think of God's constant gaze, and because we may not be walking before God as we should, it makes us uncomfortable. But when we are walking before God, we find that it makes us comfortable. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes to whom we must give account. Think about that for a moment. All things are naked and exposed, open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There will be no excuses. In other words, when we stand before him. This means that every minute of my life is recorded in the mind of God. Every minute, every moment is on record. 
and I can never escape his presence. That's comforting. If you walk the walk. But if you're not, it could be rather uncomfortable. But knowing that God is, is aware of everything in our lives should really motivate us to please him really in everything that we do. It should, shouldn't it? Or should it make us feel uncomfortable? Well, let's look at a couple of truths in the Bible that teaches us about walking specifically in the constant gaze of God. Walking in the constant gaze of God. God has always got his eyes on you. The first one is fulfillment. When we recognize that God is so concerned about you that he never takes his eyes off of you, it should bring us a sense of tremendous fulfillment, especially in the times that we are living in. We're living in dangerous times. Of course, we just heard this morning of a, of a, a for the case's mother who was apparently murdered. And it's the kind of times that we are living in. And uh, it's difficult at times if we don't think about having God constantly in our gaze, we, don't, we won't have that fulfillment. God doesn't give us a new life and then leaves us on our own. He doesn't give us new birth and says, okay, I'll see you later. I'll see you at the end of the line. He doesn't give us new birth and then leave us on our own. Nobody has a baby and then leaves the baby on his own to fend for itself. God doesn't do that with us. Thankfully, God doesn't work that way. He is with you every day. And guess what? He is interested in every detail of your life and mine. And notice it, every detail. There are a lot of people who may love you a lot, but they certainly are not interested in all the details of your life. But God is. And that doesn't mean only the things that we do for him. A lot of times we think that God is only interested in the details of the lives that we live in relation to our service to him. But that's not it. God is interested in the details of every single thing that we do in our lives. And that's why the Bible tells us that we are to commit our way to the Lord and to acknowledge him in all our ways. Because he is interested. He is infinitely interested in all that we do. And then, of course, we think that um, God is interested in the details of our lives because of what we do for him. But the surprising thing is God doesn't really need us. He doesn't. He doesn't need us for anything whatsoever. Even though it's a privilege for us to serve him. God would like to, to work through us and be able to accomplish some things for the kingdom uh, with our lives. But he certainly doesn't need us. And so if we're walking in a way that pleases God, he can work through us. And he can bring us the fulfillment in our lives that our service to him brings. So we find fulfillment in walking the walk. But we also find consistency. Knowing that you're walking under the constant watchfulness of God should affect all of our behavior. Every single thing that we do. It should make us more consistent in living a way that, that really pleases him. And so our worship for God or toward God is not what God is interested in on, on Sunday when we come to church. But he's also interested in that on Monday and Tuesday and throughout the entire course of the week. 
God doesn't only pay attention to what you do in church. His gaze is constant. And that's the key. He never takes his eyes off of us. His gaze is always on us. And if that doesn't motivate us to live for him, I don't know what else can. Challenge us to walk the walk in a God-honoring way. But then also, we find that there's also blessing. We find blessing uh, as we bask or as we sit under the constant gaze of the Lord. After Solomon uh, finished building the temple, the Lord uh, said to him, Now if you walk before me, as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and in uprightness, to do all according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. What is God saying to Solomon? Notice his walk. What does this word walk really mean? Behave. Conduct yourself in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. Basically, God was promising Solomon, if you walk with me, that's it. If you walk with me, I will reward you. Now, I can't think of anybody who turns down a reward. You know of anyone who turns down rewards? People are always looking for rewards. But there are also conditions in order that those rewards would be received. And this is a condition that God is laying down for Solomon. He says, walk before me and I'll reward you. God shows favor to those who walk consistently with him. And we see it all the time. That doesn't mean that if you're good, you're going to get everything you want from God. That, that's not what it means. But we live in a time when a lot of people think that is what it means. If you be a good little Christian boy and a good little Christian girl, God is going to give you whatever your little hearts desire. No, that's not what it means. God is not a Santa Claus. But many people view him as one, they see him as one, and they treat him as one. He's not a Santa Claus. In fact, we shouldn't even seek uh, after blessings from God. We are to seek him and to walk with him and uh, in a way that pleases him. And then the benefits will come, the rewards will come. Because his blessings is a byproduct of a close walk with him. In other words, the blessings are automatic when we walk with God. We don't walk with God just for the blessings. We walk with God because we want to please him. And as we'll see later on, because of the tremendous love that we have for him. And the blessings will automatically follow because they are a byproduct of a walk with him. Blessing also doesn't necessarily mean that you'll have plenty of money and that you'll have good health. As some are, are saying today. There are those who are saying, well, if you're not walking with God, then you're not going to have all the money that you want to have. And you're not going to have the good health that you would like to have. That's not necessarily what it means. Of course, it's nice to have those things. It's nice to have the money and the good health. But that's not what it means to walk before God. And that's not the blessings uh, that's going to come as a result. The blessings that are to come from God are much bigger than that. The Bible tells us that eye has not seen nor ear heard what God has in store for us. And so the blessings are much more bigger than that. The blessings are more generous than that as well. But the blessings are also more essential than the blessings that we would receive in this world. 
And you may never experience that until you come face to face with Jesus. And so if you're, if you're walking with God just for, the, just for the rewards or just for the pleasure, uh, you may not get what you're expecting. Because, of course, we understand that God's ways are not our ways. Neither are his thoughts our thoughts. And so we go before God and we say, Lord, I'm going to walk with you. And we have these preconceived notions in our minds of what God is going to do as a result of our walk. And it doesn't happen. And we become disillusioned and, and, and disappointed. But the blessings may not be realized in this world. But they are bigger. They are more generous. And they are most essential. But again, we need to thank God for the blessings that he gives us now. Because many of those come as a result of a consistent walk with him. And we don't even realize it at times. Walking with God may never make you a millionaire. But it will bring rewards far beyond your imagination. He will have eternal treasures stored up for you long after all the money is gone and long after all the health is gone. The treasures that God has in store for those who walk consistently will be there. And then, of course, there is also confidence. And this is the fourth advantage of walking with God or walking consistently with God. And um, it's confidence in death. We can go through this life and face uh, the end, face death, with the confidence to know that we have walked consistently with, with God, we have walked uprightly with God, we've walked in a way that pleased God. And uh, when we lie on our deathbeds, if we were to go that far or go that way, we can go with confidence to the very last breath. In Genesis uh, chapter 5 and verse 24, we read, Enoch walked with God, and then he disappeared because God took him. That's a net Bible rendition of it. Notice he walked closely with God. And one day, he was just gone. Nowhere to be found. God had literally taken him to heaven. And he didn't even die. But he had confidence up to that very moment that God took him. He was ushered into heaven, into the presence of God without facing death. I doubt if any of us will probably ever go that way. Of course, I mean, all of us would like to. Uh, there is a song that says that everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants dead. But we all want to go to heaven, and it would be glorious if God would have just snatched us away like he did, Enoch. But of course, we know that's probably not going to happen unless uh, we are all here uh, when the rapture occurs, we can look forward to that with confidence. But there is confidence when we walk before God and we please him. And so we know what the advantages of, uh, to walking with God are. But what exactly does it mean to walk with God? What exactly does it mean? What does it look like? Well, that brings us to the art of walking. Many people do not have an art to how they walk. Not many people sit down and study and say, okay, I'm going to walk a certain way and, and, and get it all down to a science. But what does it mean to walk with God? Well, one day a man and his five-year-old daughter went for a walk in the woods. 
And uh, he said to his daughter, now, Anne, there are briars in the woods and there's lots of brush and maybe some bad animals in the woods. You need to stay on the path. And Anne said, I will, Daddy, like all nice, cute little five-year-old girls would say. So they started their walk. But within just a minute or two, Anne was off to the right side of the path. They stopped, and the man said again, Anne, you need to stay on the path. She replied, I understand, Daddy. But again, it only took a minute before Anne wandered off again. Now, Anne, I told you to stay on the path, the man said this time to his daughter with a more stern voice. And Anne said, I will, Daddy. But, Daddy, what's a path? And isn't that the way it is with us sometimes? God tells us to do something, and we say, yes, Lord, I'll do it. And then we go and stray off the path. And then God comes again in another way, and he tells us to do it, and he says, I will, Daddy. I will, Father. And then we stray again, and he comes back, and he says again. And then eventually we get to the point, and he says, Lord, what is that? What does it mean? And so we come to the point in our lives sometimes where we ask, well, Lord, you want me to walk with you. You want me to walk before you, but what does it mean to walk with God? We've seen how the patriarchs walked. And we can always say, oh Lord, I want to walk with you. And after all, that's one of the things that God requires of us according to this verse, to walk before him or to walk with the Lord. But how do we walk with the Lord in a practical sense? How do we do it? Well, God has given us some descriptive words that tells us how that is supposed to happen. What it's supposed to look like in our lives that gives us, that will give us some guidance. First of all, we are to walk lovingly. Lovingly. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us, and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now notice what Paul does in this verse. He tells us not only that Jesus loved, but he also tells us how he loved. And how did he love? To love like Jesus, we need to imitate his example. Notice what he says, therefore be imitators of God. Imitate Jesus Christ in not only the love that he had, but in how he loved. To love like Jesus, we need to imitate his example, and that means we need to give. That's what he did. He loved so much that he gave himself. You see, we can tell a lot of people that we love them. And we can probably tell them in a lot of fancy words how much we love them. But until we give them our time, our possessions, and our resources, we don't really show them how much we love them. And that's what Jesus Christ has done for us in showing us how to love. And that's why Paul says, says here, be imitators. Imitate Jesus in the way he loved. And so how do we walk with God? We walk lovingly. Love doesn't just happen until giving happens, is what Paul is saying here. And so I can talk about love and... and um, but unless I'm willing to demonstrate that love in the community, in my neighborhood, in the workplace, then that talk is of no value at all. And many times we can talk the talk real good, but it's the walk where we fall short. 
And we must realize that once we get the walk down, the talk will become automatically because the, walk, the talk flows out of the walk. But then also, not only we must, uh, love, we must walk lovingly, but we must also walk blamelessly. In Psalm 119 and verse 1 and 2, he says, How blessed are those whose actions are blameless, who obey the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his rules and seek him with all their heart. In order to walk blamelessly, we need to obey the word of God. And in order to obey the word of God, we need to know what the word of God says. How can you obey what you don't know? And this means it is essential for us to read our Bibles. Essential to read our Bibles consistently. You see, because until we we do, we can't even begin to understand what it means to walk with God. Not even in the slightest degree will we be able to begin to understand what it means to walk with Him. And so again, walking blamelessly doesn't mean to walk perfectly. It doesn't mean to walk sinlessly. It means keeping no secrets. Of course, we can't keep secrets from God anyway. When there is sin, we need to deal with it directly, as the Bible admonishes us, confessing it, but more importantly, turning away from it, and uh, and certainly keeping short accounts with God and with others, and we will keep going forward. Many times we find that if this doesn't happen, we would either stand still or we would go backwards, but the key is to go forward. And so we, look, we walk blamelessly, we walk lovingly, but we also walk, as uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, circumspectly. See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. What's the implication there? You do not walk circumspectly, you walk as a fool. It's quite simple. Circumspectly is a word that we don't really use, do we? We don't even hear it very much unless we read the passage here. Uh, But what does it mean? Well, here's an example. If you have a cat at home, and you take the cat, and you throw a bunch of marbles on the floor, and you drop the cat on the floor, the cat is going to land on all fours, and he's going to walk, and he's not going to touch a single one of those marbles. Try it. You got a cat at home? Try it. He'll walk around all those, uh, not, even if a marble rolls toward that cat, the cat will move away from it. He won't touch it. We have a bunch of little kittens at the Adventure Learning Center. And it's interesting to watch those animals and see what they do. You can learn a lot from animals, you know. But you drop that cat on the floor, you walk all around those marbles, and not a single one will touch him. Well, that's what it means to walk circumspectly. Uh, you walk in such a way that you can make it through a minefield and never step on a mine. And that's what the cat demonstrated. He walked all through those marbles, and they were rolling. You know marbles are on a tile floor. They roll all over the place. But that cat was able to walk through all those marbles without touching them. And Satan plants landmines along the way to try to destroy us and to lure us into destructive sins in our lives. And so we have a minefield that we need to maneuver through. And walking circumspectly, enables us to do that. God has given us the roadmap that we need to make it through that minefield. And that's why it's so essential that we read our Bibles 
uh, because it's the roadmap. It's all that we have. You can come up with something else on your own, but I can guarantee you it won't work. Only God's Word does. And so if we spend consistent time in God's Word, we can learn to walk circumspectly through life, avoiding all of the landmines, big and small, whatever shape and size Satan may prepare them in, uh, that he puts in our path to destroy us. And so walking with God means that we can become wise to the ways of the evil one. That we can educate ourselves in where to walk and how to walk. And that's one of the reasons, one of the ways we can learn how to walk with God. Walking circumspectly. And we live in a time when Satan is increasing his tax. And the landmines are coming in different sizes and shapes and all of all sorts. But then we also need to walk purposefully. Uh, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, Paul expresses his desire for this kind of a walk. He says, my aim is to know him, to experience the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings, and to be like him in his death. And so somehow, to attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained this, that is, I have not already been perfected, but I strive to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Paul knew exactly what his goal was in life, to become like Jesus. And that's what it means to walk purposefully. We have a purpose. He said, I'm not there yet. I'm not perfect, but I'm pressing on. I'm getting there. I'm not where I want to be, but I'm headed in the right direction. And that's what we ought to be saying as we talk about walking with God. He was a man who walked with a purpose. The question that we are to answer in our individual lives this evening is, am I a man or a woman who walks with purpose? Because that's what it means. It really means to walk the walk. Have you ever watched a pigeon walk? How many of you have looked at pigeons flying around and walk, walking on the ground? One of the things you would notice about a pigeon is they take a few steps and then they stop and they walk or they have to refocus. They stop, they watch, and then they take a, new, a few more steps and they stop and focus. Another step, stop, and focus again. If a pigeon were to run, they'd fall over. Because they can't. They can't focus. And so they stop, they walk, stop, focus, walk, stop, focus. And uh, we can learn something from the pigeon in terms of walking purposefully. Between every step we take in our walk with God, we need to stop and refocus. Refocus on our goal of becoming like Jesus. That's God's plan that we may be conformed to the image of his son. So many time, times in our world, we have so many things that distract us. And they may be legitimate things, our jobs, our friendships, our families, our possessions, kids, the house, and all kinds of stuff that will distract us. And it's easy to get pulled in, in many different directions at the same time. But when we focus we will remain 
in touch with Jesus. And also in God's constant gaze. And so if we want to be like him, if that's our purpose, then your eyes need to be refocused continually on him. And of course, spending time in God's word is the very thing that will keep us focused on our goals, on our goal at all times. And so to walk purposefully means that in all that you do, you press ahead toward the goal of becoming like Christ. But there's another factor involved in walking the walk or walking with God, and that factor is love. And we might want to call it love 101. In addition to the walk with him, uh, to daily press on toward the goal of becoming like Christ, another requirement that God has that we find here in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12 is not only to walk in all his ways, but also to love him, to love him. And uh, it's important that God desires us to love him. So here's the question. How should you love God? How should you love God? What, the, what should our love for God look like? If you were to draw a portrait of your love for God, what would it look like? Well, first of all, we need to be mindful of the fact that it's required love. It's a love that is required. It's not optional. Many times individuals, Christians, think that their love for God is optional. They can do it if they feel like and don't do it if they, if they don't want to. Uh, but for, for the Christian who really serves the Lord, loving him is required. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verse 5 and 6, we read, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, not half-heartedly, he says, but with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Notice he says we are to love God with every fiber of our being. As the tripartite means, tripartite means that we are, we are to love him with our, with our body, soul, and spirit. The totality of our being is how we are to love God. In Matthew chapter 22, the Pharisees asked Jesus, what was the greatest commandment? And he used the same thing. He says, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your spirit. And your mind. He says, this is the first and the greatest commandment. Loving God. Nowhere does the Bible tell us that loving God is optional. Because it isn't. There is no implication in the word of God that loving God is optional. Loving God is not like a smorgasbord where you can... Pick, choose, and refuse whatever you want. No, love is required. It's the greatest duty that the believer has, to love his God. Now, there are times that a lot of people say, well, I, I don't love God because I'm required to. I love God because I want to. Boy, that may sound real super spiritual. But there are days when you're going to feel not that way. You're not really going to feel like you're the kind of loving person that you want to be toward God. And so we cannot really go on how we feel. Whether you feel like it or not, guess what? You're still required to love God. And there are some days when you're going to wake up and you're not going to feel like loving God. You may have prayed about something to God that's really bugging you, like Paul had his thorn in the flesh, and he prayed three times, and God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Well, you may not have accepted that as Paul did. And so you wake up one day and you've got the same problem that you've been praying to God for to fix for the last three weeks. 
and there's nothing that's changed, and you really don't feel like loving God. So you really can't go on emotions. Loving God as a decision is a decision that's based on the Word of God, not on our emotions. But what does loving God mean? If you're thinking that it involves those warm, fuzzy, fuzziness that we call it, it's not. There are times when your relationship with God produces real, devoted emotions toward Him. There are times when that will happen. But that's not the kind of love that the Bible is talking about. Jesus defined love this way. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will obey me. Plain and simple. If you love me, you'll do exactly what I say. No ifs, buts, or maybes. And so obedience then is the test as to whether or not you really love God. And if you do, you are walking with him in the way that pleases him. It's like the bumper sticker that says, obey if you, li- if, obey if you love Jesus. Any idiot can honk. And that's like talking. Obey if you love Jesus. Any idiot can honk a horn. What does it take to blow a horn? What does it take to press the, the, the steering wheel? Nothing really, does it? But it takes a whole lot more effort to obey God and keep his commandment, especially in the kind of world and the challenges that we face and that we are going through. And so obedience to God is evidence of our love for him. But also, not only do we find that love is required, but it's also finally uh, rewarding. Love is also rewarding. Loving God may be required, but it's also rewarding. Frankly, it doesn't impact God all that much if you choose not to love him. But it does impact us dramatically. If you choose not to love God, God says, hey, no problem. Okay, have it your way. But you will feel the consequences of not loving God. If you say to him, you know what, Lord? I don't want to love you. And some people do say that. God just says, okay. That's your choice. But eventually you're going to feel the impact of that decision that you have made. And so there are, no cons- there are consequences to every choice that you make. And one of the consequences of not loving God is that he is not obligated to give any rewards that come from loving him. He's not obligated. And that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, monetary rewards. And many times people think about rewards from God, and the first thing that comes to mind is monetary. Why is that so? Because it's the kind of world that we live in. We live in a, in a possession, materialistic or, uh, type of world. And so people always got their minds on money. But that's not what he's talking about. You'll be a better person if you love God than if you don't love God. Think about the lives and the relationships that can be impacted simply by your love for God. Loving God makes you more like him. It portrays the love of God. In fact, the Bible tells us that the love of God has been shared abroad in our hearts, and that love is to impact those around us in a unique way. And so it's a reward in and of itself. Mercy is another reward we experience if we love the Lord or we love God. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 and 6 says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation, to those who hate me, forget this, showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So in a sense, God says, I want you to love me because your loving me opens up the door to my mercy. Anybody here who don't want to open up God's door of mercy to you in your experience? And that simply means that God will not only withhold from you what you deserve when you sin against him, but he'll faithfully love you in spite of your sins. There's never a time in our lives when God says, because of the amount of sins or because of your continual sins, I'm going to stop loving you. I'm, going to, I'm not going to love you anymore. Forget about it. Don't even think about me loving you. God never says that. His love is continuous and consistent, and that is the reward that love brings. Loving God also opens up the door of experiencing joy. Psalm 5, 11 and 12 notes, But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround them as with a shield. And so those who love God will experience the joy of loving him and will rejoice. The opposite, however, is those who don't love God don't rejoice. Know anybody who's not rejoicing? Perhaps. They're not as loving toward God as they should be. Simply put, you find joy in loving God. You find pain in not loving him. Many of the people in our, in our world today who are experiencing tremendous pain, you will find, are those who don't love God. Another reward to receive from God's protection is, uh, is God's protection. That's another reward. Uh, Psalm 145, verse 20 says, The Lord preserves all who love him. The Lord preserves all who love him. And that's pretty much straightforward, isn't it? You don't love him? Man, don't expect his protection. God gives a kind of protection that you don't know otherwise. In other words, the protection that God gives is unlike anything else that you'll ever experience from anyone or anywhere else. And so if you have a love relationship with God, then you have access to his mercy, his joy, and also his protection. But you also have access to his goodness. And we like to quote Romans 8.28. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are the called uh, according to his purpose. And we are rewarded because uh, we are rewarded with his treasures as well, according to Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 20. I traverse the way of the righteous in the midst of the paths of justice, that I may cause those who love me to inherit wealth, that I may fill their treasuries. And again, this verse is not talking about riches. It's talking about heart issues. Our relationship with God as it relates to our heart condition toward him. And uh, we know what it means. Uh, uh, new moms and new dads know what it means uh, to, to treasure uh, their little ones. Uh, to protect their little ones. Because they are the treasure of their hearts. Workaholics know what it means to love their jobs because that's their treasure. For the parents, their newborns are their treasure. 
And so we have a sense of fulfillment and joy in our hearts if we love the Lord. And so we've learned that when we love God, we give, he will give us joy, he'll give us protection, he'll give us goodness, he'll give us treasures. And also in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 9, he says, he'll give us something that we can't even know about yet. The verse says, I have not seen nor ever heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We can't comprehend what God has in store for those who love him. God's got some big plans for you and I. Huge plans. Mega plans. So much so that we can't wrap our minds around them. That's what he's saying here. Incredible reward awaiting to the, at the finish line for all those who love God. And so love is not only required, but when we meet the requirements of love, we find that we will also receive the rewards of love. And so in a nutshell, loving God is required. And loving God is rewarding. And if you're a Christian, you should love God. Because that's what's required of us. I couldn't see a Christian doing anything else other than loving God. If, you are, if there is something else, then it puts you in the category of those who do not know God. And so what have we learned about really what it means to really walk in all his ways and to love him? What have we learned? Well, a couple of things. We've first of all learned that walking involves fulfillment for us, consistency in our walk, blessing, and also confidence when we get to death's door. Walking with God involves all of those things. But walking with God also uh, requires us or calls us uh, to love. And to do it, uh, to love God or to walk in love toward God or with God, uh, to do it lovingly, blamelessly, circumspectly, and purposefully. Paul had a purpose, and we should have the same purpose. And then, of course, love is not only required, but is also rewarding. And think of how much blessings we could miss out on if we fail to love God. And in loving God, we automatically walk the walk that God requires of us. The question is, how are you walking? And only you can answer that as before the Lord this evening. How are you walking with God.